How many times in our lives do we feel like we are in impossible situations? But there's been times in my own life where I feel like something's happening, and it feels like it's impossible because it's a situation that I can't control. Because normally when Americans get into problems, they, they will look at their problems and they will think of a couple different ways that they can solve those problems. Quite simply, the easiest for most people, believe it or not, whether they have a lot of it or not, is to throw money at it. Or they'll think that if they have enough, that that will help solve the problem. The second aspect, if you don't have that, is that you will think that you can control it somehow, that you can work harder, that you can do something. You might be able to gather some things together, that you might be able to you know, get people to go along with you, and that you guys can overcome this problem. That's the idea of the story that we're going to be reading today is when we see impossible situations, where do we turn and how do we react in the impossibilities? It's a tremendous story. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. John chapter 6, we're going to read verses 1 through 15 this morning. It's probably one of the, in my opinion, most uh, interesting stories that there is. And I, I don't even have time, as you guys know, it's already 1035, uh, to really break it all down. But when you look at this story, you need to read this story through the eyes of every individual that's involved. In verse 1, it says, after these things, everybody say, after these things, Jesus went over to the Sea of Galilee, which was the Sea of Tiberias, which just means that the, uh, the Sea of Galilee had more than one name, and I won't even take the time to go into the history of why, but they called it different things. What's important in that verse is that that verse is setting the context for the rest of the scriptures that we need to understand if we're going to put ourselves in the shoes of the people in the story, that we should wonder what were those things. Because we don't just go through life and think that things happen and then we move on from those. Usually there's things that we're going through that lead to a moment that affect the way we are, are responding. There might be things that go on in our lives that affect our feelings, our emotions. It, it might affect the way that we think, that we react, that we respond. We may have ha just had a bad time. We may have had a good time. We may have been with people that we love. There's different things that take place. So what is these things that would potentially set this story to have imp an impact? The interesting thing about this story is that this is the only story in the Gospels that is in all four Gospels besides the resurrection. Every author decided to include this specific story. If you don't know what it is, it's the feeding of the 5,000. And so we have a little idea of what, me, what might have been taking place that led up to the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Because it's in all of the Gospels. And if you read it, each writer talks about different aspects of what was taking place and how it happened. And you don't have to think that, you know, it, they didn't all line up or match because they all had different perspectives. It's interesting to me, though, to, to try and understand what was the writer John trying to get across to us, the apostle. 
as he wrote this? What were the after these things? If you look in all of the Gospels, you will see that in Matthew chapter 14, right before the feeding of the 5,000, that Jesus finds out that his good friend and his relative, John the Baptist, has just been beheaded. Don't think that that death did not affect Jesus. Because if you read in Matthew chapter 14, what you will see is that Jesus had sorrow in his heart, that he wanted to get away and that he stepped into the boat to leave the crowds behind. You'll also see that at that same time, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus' disciples were just returning to him. It says that it's the time that he sent out his disciples two by two into the surrounding cities in order to proclaim the good news in the name of Jesus, and that as they went out, they were returning and rejoicing because they were able to, under the authority of Christ, heal the sick and cast out demons. They were seeing the miraculous. And so these things were leading up to what was about to take place. And then in Mark chapter 6, what you see is Mark actually addresses both of these that were leading up to the 5,000 being fed. When he addresses both the beheading of John the Baptist and the disciples returning. Now, I just want you to understand, like, it's not good enough to just know the facts of what was taking place. You need to understand the emotion in the moment. You're just getting back if you're a disciple, and you've experienced one of the greatest things you've probably ever experienced in life. The authority of Christ in you to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to see the miraculous, to be able to tell people about this good news that Jesus, the Messiah, is bringing to all people. They're excited. They're jacked. They don't know that their leader, Jesus, has just found out that someone that's very close to him, that helped pave the way for who he is, has just been killed. When they arrive upon the scene, they're excited. They're full of emotion. I'm sure they began to hear the news amongst them, what happened to John the Baptist. It's not that they want to squelch the moment, but they're weary and they're tired from traveling at the same time. And you can read in the different Gospels that even in their excitement that they were tired. Jesus and all three of them made the suggestion to them that we should get away from the crowd away from the people, away from ministering into the boat and find a place of solitude, a quiet place, he says, where we can find rest. After these things. You might also remember what I was preaching the two weeks ago when we ended John chapter 5. After these things, the writer of the Gospel of John ends the end of chapter 5 with Jesus letting the Pharisees know, the religious leaders, you want to know who Jesus is? This is who I am. He gives them one of the most thorough explanations in all of the Gospels of who Jesus is. And he closes out that section by letting them know that if you really believed in Moses like all y'all say you do, then you would believe in me because it is Moses that wrote about me, which will come into play later in this story. The other aspect that might be after these things is 
that you can see from the other Gospels before the feeding of the 5,000 took place, and you see a, a touch of it in the beginning of this chapter, is that they didn't just have a bunch of people come and decide to feed them, but that Jesus actually had decided that he's going to teach them because they were hungry. Not just hungry for food, but hungry for the bread of life. And so he began to teach them, and it also talks about him doing miracles for the people, bringing you know, glory to his Father. And so all of these things had just happened in this story after these things. You have to understand that Jesus still has a crowd that's following after him wherever he goes. He goes out on boat, and he travels a few miles on boat to get to a quiet place. They're so excited that they'll run 10 miles just to catch up to Jesus on land. And so these crowds are pursuing him. Why? Because they want the healer. They want the deliverer. They want the prophet that they heard about in Samaria. They want the magical man with the magnetic personality that's full of charisma because he's a really good teacher. They want the guy that makes them feel good. They want the guy that they feel like he could do the impossible. And they are all facing impossibilities in their life, impossibilities in their nation. They're hoping that he will become the next king. They follow him less for who he is and more for what he might potentially be able to do for them. They follow him less for who he is and more because I'm hoping that he can do something for me. I'm hoping that if I go to church that God will do something for me. I'm hoping that if I start praying and reading the Bible, that God will do something for me. I'm hoping that if I become a better person, that God will do something for me. And so people follow after Jesus, not because of who he is, but because of what they hope he will do for them. Verse 3, and Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat with his disciples. Verse 4 throws in this tiny detail that if we're not careful, we'll just skip over because we don't think these feasts are applicable. It says, now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near. Listen, it's no coincidence that the Apostle John would include this in his story because Passover probably meant more to the Jews than the 4th of July does to most Americans. It wasn't just a time to light off fireworks in celebration of their freedom. It was the idea that they would remember the freedom of their nation, of the people from Egypt, but they would throw an entire huge feast. The entire nation would rally and often show up in Jerusalem and go to the temple, and it would be a huge celebration. It was also a time where they would remember the, the ten plagues. And the final one that instituted specifically the Feast of Passover. It's a time when the Jews would remember the miraculous parting of the Red Sea. It's a time when the Jews would remember the miraculous cloud by day and fire by night. It's a time when they would remember that Yahweh God can overcome any obstacle no matter how insurmountable it might appear to be, including miraculously feeding 12 tribes, a nation of people, 
with what was called bread from heaven, manna that just would miraculously appear on the ground like dew every single morning. This was the setup for what they would see Jesus soon do. In verse 5 it says, Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him. He said to Philip, I want you to hear like Jesus already sees the heart of people. He could see the need before they even arise, before they come up on the scene. He just sees a bunch of people coming toward him. His automatic response when he turns to one of his disciples. I don't know why he was picking on Philip this day. Whether Philip was the treasurer at the time, whether he was the smart one in the group, or that he picked on Peter and those guys enough. But he turns to Philip, and he says, there's thousands of people. Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But this he said to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Everybody say the test. I find it interesting that Jesus himself doesn't mind throwing out tests in front of people. And he even makes it clear. It's clear in his word, like, this is the test. So I'm going to test you. I already know what I'm going to do. I already know what's going to take place, right? But I'm about to test you. And so really what's going on right here is, is we need to understand Jesus is never caught off guard. So many times when things happen to us in life and the great multitudes come and there's this expectation, we're caught off guard, we didn't expect this, we didn't know it was going to happen, this is an insurmountable, you know, problem that we are facing right now, that Jesus is not surprised. That whenever you go through things in life where you think you're drowning and things are going wrong and I just can't get past this, where is Jesus I want you to understand, not only is Jesus there, but Jesus is not surprised. He's not caught off guard. It's not like he didn't know that this was going to take place. He's well aware of not only the situation and what's going on, but of how he's going to handle it. He has the answer. And what he wants for us is for us to have the answer too. How are you going to handle it? Right away, my mind goes back to TV when I was a kid. If we just could see every problem like this, this is a test. It's only a test. This is, this Jesus is, this station is conducting a test of the emergency broadcast system. How are you going to respond to the test. James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4, he's writing to the church and he says, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, somebody say any, that doesn't exclude, right? That is inclusive of every kind of trouble. Whenever something that you view as trouble coming your way, Consider it an opportunity for great joy. That's tough. But it's an opportunity. You know what an opportunity is? It's a choice. 
You don't have to take the opportunity, but the opportunity is there. You can respond in a different way, but here's the way that God would like you to respond if you follow after him. Verse 3, for you know, you know, like we all know this. So he wasn't writing to people who didn't know, like we don't know. For you know that when your faith is tested, there's no question that our faith is tested by God. For you know that when, not if, your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. I'm reading this from New Living so that you guys can really understand the English of it. A chance to grow is what? An opportunity. There's the possibility that when your faith is tested, you will have an opportunity for your faith to grow. And he says, so let it grow for when your endurance is fully developed. So this is about my endurance being developed? Yes, but that's not the end goal. The end goal is the next part that you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. How in the world would you like to go through life knowing that you need nothing? Nothing that I need in life. Life is great. I, I don't care what comes against me, what happens, what's going on inside of me, outside of me. I don't care what I see. Like, there is nothing that I need in life. How many would like to have that kind of life? So there's... There's a little bit of a problem that he gives us that equals needing nothing in life. And that's that when we are having our faith tested, instead of, you know, responding in a way that's indifferent to God, we respond in a way that we have great joy in those opportunities. And it will bring you to the place where your faith grows enough. You need nothing in life. So when Jesus asked Philip the question to test him, Here's what I want us to understand, because so many times we go through things in life, and we're asking God, is this a test? What is going on? And we think in sometimes our lack of faith and our negativity that, you know, once we, we do this and we blow up and we make a mistake, that we failed the test. I want you to understand something, though, that there's good tests and bad tests, and God doesn't give bad tests. So what is a bad test? Well, I've heard that people have teachers and people that create tests will sometimes put out a test, and their goal is to fail people. And that's the purpose, to cause people to fail. In my eyes, that's a bad test. In real estate, you have to go, when you go to get your license and take a test that's a national test and it's a state test, and you know that 60% of the people fail that test on their first attempt, 60%. And you don't have to research far to find out that the industry has made it that difficult that more than half of the people would purposefully fail on their first attempt because they're attempting to try and weed out people who aren't serious about that as a career and wouldn't act as a good agent. 60%. Their goal is to cut it in half. That's... That's a test that's produced to purposefully make people fail. Now, there are good tests. And what I want you to understand is that God is not trying to weed you out because he thinks you aren't serious or that you won't cut it as a Christian. And so he offers what I would call a good test. 
And a good test gives you the opportunity to understand how much you know and where to grow. How much you know and where to grow. And now understand, the Bible just said that Philip's faith is being tested. But I want us to understand, it's more than a test of his knowledge. Because remember, they just returned from ministering to people in various towns. They're exhausted. They just learned of John the Baptist's death. Jesus and his disciples get in a boat to, to get away from the crowd to a quiet place to get some rest. And ministry was not supposed to be on the menu for the day. Imagine how that feels. Absolutely beat. Totally zapped. You get home thinking you're finally going to be able to get some rest. And what happens? The phone rings. And there's a need. And let me tell you something. Needs typically don't arise when they're convenient, right? And so you can't rest. You know that in that moment you have to keep going. And in that moment, quite often, you feel pretty powerless about the situation. So here's Philip in this moment. He's facing tremendous need and zero resources. And everyone is looking to him right now in this moment for the answer. And what does Philip say? In verse 7, Philip answered Jesus, and he said, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them. That every one of them would even have a little. Like, what he's trying to express is that this situation is out of our control. Now, what does he do? Right away, he jumps to how money might be able to fix the situation. Did you notice that? Like, we're facing an impossible situation. What's the first thing that comes to mind? Usually, the thing that's in your heart the most. Like, I don't know, but I think that maybe money will solve the situation. And so he's a realist, and he begins to calculate numbers inside of his head. Maybe it's how much money that they've been saving up as a ministry over time. Maybe he's trying to guesstimate how much it would take to even be able to give a little towards the need. And he just throws out a fairly large number, which equates to about seven months' worth of wages. And he still knows that that's an insignificant amount for what they need. Like money obviously isn't the answer to every problem. And so one of the other disciples, he jumps in to try and save him. This is Andrew, Peter's brother. And so he responds and he says in verse 9, there's a lad that's here. That idea for lad is a little boy who has five barley loaves and two small fish. When they say fish, they mean sardines. Barley loaves aren't loaves of bread. They're flat little pancakes of barley that he would have had, which represents that he was also very poor if that's the meal that he had for lunch. And, he's, and then Andrew says, here's what he's got, but what are they among so many? So what's Andrew doing? Like, if money won't solve the problem, he jumps in with this idea that we need to start looking around for what we already have, right? Like, maybe there's something here that I can do. If we don't have enough money, maybe we gather up from all the people, and if we all do something, maybe we can make this happen. Even though it looks impossible, we are still thinking 
in the impossibility that we have the ability to control the outcome with something that we can do. It should be challenging to us as Christians that if this question were asked to a non-believer, do you not think that they would answer the same way? I think that those that don't believe in Jesus, when they're put in an insurmountable situation, their response would be the exact same way as most Christians. And this is the test of Christians. How do we respond differently? Think about this. These 12 disciples are the same disciples who just hours ago were in a boat together recounting all the teaching, the healing, the, count, the casting out of demons that they had done in Jesus' name. The very same people who received supernatural authority and power from Jesus Christ to perform miracles themselves, and now there is no room in their mind for a miracle to take place. There's no thought of trusting in the one that they have chosen to follow. I mean, can we even grasp that some of the moments that we fight the hardest to avoid and some of the moments that we fear the most are the very moments that Jesus wants to use to help strengthen us? The disciples saw a puzzle that could not be solved instead of a savior that could not be contained. That's how we often see. Sometimes we miss the growing moments of crisis because we don't want to take the time to hear Jesus over our own protest about all the bad things that are happening in our lives. And now once again, this isn't about them realizing that they have weak faith, that this isn't about realizing they've failed the test with their answers. I want you to understand that what Jesus is trying to do to these guys right here in testing them isn't even so much about how much more their faith needs to grow. I believe that Jesus was using the test not so that they would see the lack and know that they need to grow, but in their acknowledgement of their inability to control the situation, they would have the opportunity to witness a miracle of provision which would then encourage the growth of their faith. He wasn't like, you guys suck. Y'all failed me. Like, y'all know right now that your faith is horrible. You need to grow that stuff. No, he's... He says, I want you to see something. You can't control the situation. So to help your faith grow, I'm going to do something over here to really give you the opportunity for growth in your life. And so what's it say in verse 10? He said, make the people sit down. There was a bunch of grass in the place, and the men sat down, and the number was about 5,000. You know, it's believed that that number was only for men. If you've never heard that, they didn't count women and children in those days. 
And so there was potentially 10, 15, 20,000 people. You'll see different numbers that were out in the crowds. Verse 11 says, Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those who were then sitting down. And then likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. Everybody say, as much as they wanted. Now, now here in this story, what I think is amazing, I love the fact that Jesus still uses the little boy's lunch. Know this. Like, you might think, well, because I've read the story, like, that seems like the practical thing to do. But that's because you've read the story. Like, really, Jesus didn't have to use the little boy's lunch. If God could produce manna from heaven on the ground every single morning when the Israelites would wake up like dew, Jesus didn't have to do anything like that. He was not a recreator. He is the creator. He could have done anything he wants, and he still chose to use the little boy's lunch. And then you look at the little boy, and you think, wow, who is this little boy? Like this no-name, poor little boy that gave up what little he had in order for it to be multiplied in the hands of Jesus. Talk about childlike faith. Most of us adults would be going like, you want my lunch. There's 20,000 people around me, and you want my lunch. Yeah, no. They should have prepared themselves. They should have planned this thing out. They, they could have done some meal prep, right? They, they could have thought ahead. Hey, if we're going to go after Jesus, we better make sure that we have something to eat in case we stay late or some snacks for the kids or something like that. Like, I'm not, your emergency is not my emergency, Right? We would have wanted to know the who, what, why, when, where, and how. You want what? Who wants it? Why do you want it? How is that going to happen? And when is it going to happen? Because I'm about ready to eat this thing myself. But in a childlike faith, when the little that he had was requested of him, he gave it up to Jesus. So that Jesus could take the little that he had to multiply it for all. Now, I could give you the lesson here of us giving up a little because that's all we really have in life, the little that God has given us, and he will multiply those things in our life. I could tell you stories in my own life where I know that God has done that exact thing, and he's done it in many of your lives. He's taken the little, whether it was the little gifting inside of you, whether it was the little bit of money that you had left over, whether it was the little bit of faith that you had left, and he's multiplied all of these things in your life, but, but that's not what this is about. It goes on, and it says that after this miracle, took, or before it took place, that Jesus gave thanks. Everybody says, give thanks. This is an important detail in the story, and I'm not going to go into it right now because... Jesus giving thanks to honor God for the little, even the tiniest provision towards the giant need is actually what will be remembered later in this chapter. In John chapter 10, it's talked about, this sight. And they don't remember it by the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. They remember it by the place that Jesus gave thanks. What's the important aspect that they remembered? That Jesus took the little and gave thanks. That even in the little that we have, we still give thanks. 
And then out of the miracle of Jesus, what does he do? He sends his disciples out to share it with others. I don't know if you realize this or not, but Jesus could have done anything he wanted in this moment also. Like, if the bread was being multiplied, he could have had them line up like cattle and herded them through and fed all of those people very quickly. You may not realize this. We were at Promise Keepers one time, and there were 60,000 men in the stadium. On Saturday, they provided lunch at that Promise Keepers. There's 60,000 men. They say lunch is provided outside for you, and you leave the stands, and you go through this line. And I'm telling you, I swear it was a half hour or less. All 60,000 men had lunches in their hands. And I remember whoever I was with saying, man, I do not know how in the world they fed so many guys that fast. But it's possible. And so if Jesus wanted to, he could have just said, you know what, here's the baskets, set the, food, set the baskets out, and bam, let the people come, and they'll just start feeding themselves. They'll grab whatever it is that they want or they think that they need, and, and they will do that. He could have done whatever he wanted. He could have made it appear miraculously as they, it was, as they were sitting there. It could have just popped up beside them. I want you to understand the things that he could have done so that you would understand the importance of what he did. Instead of doing anything else, he decided to include his disciples in on the miracle so that they are then sharing from the miracle of Jesus with other people. And can you imagine as he's handing them baskets of bread and baskets of fish, the same guys that were just questioning how in the world are we going to feed all of these people, they didn't have the faith to look beyond the natural and into the miraculous, even though they'd experienced it themselves, that those same guys are now out there sharing in the goodness of God. Imagine what it meant to them. Like, we only have five loaves, but hey, here's a loaf, here's a loaf. Here's a, you want any more bread? Here's a loaf, here's a loaf. Imagine what it was doing to their faith. Like, how in the world is this happening? I was actually questioning Jesus, and now, bread, bread, bread. I'm sharing in the goodness of God. I'm sharing in the grace of Jesus. He didn't even have to feed these people. I don't know if you read the story in one of the other gospels, what do the disciples want to do with the people? They're like, these people ain't starving. They can go home. Let's just send them away. Jesus' response is, we don't have to feed them. I want to feed them. We're tired out. We weren't meant to do ministry. You know what? We're going to do it anyways because I have compassion. And that word for compassion that's used, I believe it's in the Gospel of Mark, is the idea that it's from his gut. He was compelled to want to feed their need even though they could have lived for another day without bread that day. And so they're out there in the challenge, in the test, and their faith has to be growing left and right. They're giving from the miracle of Jesus. And as you give from the miracles that Jesus does in your life, guess what happens? This miracle happened, and now I'm sharing in that miracle with you and with you and with you and with you. I can't deny how good my God is. You can't take that away from me. I not only witnessed it, but I was a part of it, that he was good enough to include me in on the miracle that he wanted to do in somebody else's life and for them. And yet I get to be a part of that. The idea of sharing in the miracle of God, and imagine if we would do likewise today, knowing the insufficiency of our own lives, but able to recognize the miracle of our salvation. Come on, somebody. 
Probably the greatest miracle you'll ever experience is your own salvation if you really recognize how bad you were and how good our God is. In sharing in the grace and the mercy that takes place every day in our lives, recognizing that around us a miracle takes place every single day, and then accepting the responsibility from Jesus to actually go out and share the goodness of Jesus with others who we know because he tells us that what they're hungry for isn't the things of this world, but for the bread of life. It would be a huge boost to your faith if you would start going out and sharing in what you see Jesus do all around you. Because remember, the test isn't as much about being faith-challenging as it is faith-building. Verse 12, so when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain so that nothing is lost. Gather up the fragrance, the fragments that remain. Everybody say what remains. So that nothing is lost. Therefore, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets. There's the number 12 again. With the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Two things about Jesus having them gather all the leftovers afterwards. Number one, Jesus doesn't want anything to go to waste. I think it's important to recognize what Jesus provided here. Listen, once again, Jesus could have done whatever he wanted. He was the creator of the world. Though man may not have known exactly how many people were there, Jesus knew how many people were there. Jesus could have made, could have made it so that everybody had one sandwich. We're going to have a little bit of fish, a little bit of bread. It's the best surf and turf you're ever going to eat. Tuna sandwich. Everybody gets one sandwich that'll satisfy the little burning inside of your tummy, and then we're going to send you home, okay? He could have done whatever he wanted. He could have made it just so it was the exact amount, but he didn't. Instead, when they had a need, he not only met their need, but he gave them abundance. He had enough grace and mercy that though they didn't meal plan, they didn't prepare for the situation, that they walked blindly in to what they were about to experience, that in his grace, he gave them more than they ever could have possibly imagined. That's how good Jesus is, whether they deserved it or not. And then he says, but listen, just because I gave you an abundance, just because I gave you more than enough, just because you have a little something left over that I have provided in your life doesn't mean that I want it to go to waste. Now, this is a lesson we should probably listen to because most people in America, most people in America have a little left over. If you don't have left over now, it's probably because of what you didn't do with it in the beginning. And with their leftovers, how often do they use their leftovers for what matters versus letting their leftover go to waste? You know how much stuff, stuff that we buy in our lives with our leftovers that really equals waste in the big picture? Um, a couple months ago, we had a guy that came, and uh, he came to my business partner and I, and he wanted me to buy his storage units. He had his wife pass away. He sold his house. 
he was moving everything that he, him and his wife owned for their 70-some years of life was put into two storage units. I said, I'm a pastor. I don't want your stuff. Go and sell it. There's nothing there that I need. I tried to get out of it. He kept begging me, just throw a number. So I threw out a number that was a very minimal amount, hoping to encourage him to go ahead and just sell all of his stuff. His response was, this guy's not a believer, and yes, I've tried to get him to come to church. His response was, wow, you must have read my mind. Deal. So as we've unpacked these two storage units, we have a four-car shop that's full and half of a two-car shop, and we still have probably at least a third of, the store, of one of the storage units left. All of his accumulation of things, of stuff in life between him and his wife, over 70 years of life, sold to me for $800, and most of it, I mean, there's value to some people. There will be value that comes out of that. I can tell you this. I've sat back and thought about it for the last couple of weeks with my wife as we have looked at things and went through it and thought, this is the accumulation of stuff that means so little that the next person doesn't even really want it. And the people that are there to purchase some of it, it's not that they're buying it because they need it. And yet you would spend your whole life working to acquire these things. You would spend your hours and hours and hours of your life to accumulate extra stuff in your life that the next person after you is going to look at and think, how do we get rid of most of this? You know the majority of that and most of the houses that I've been a part of, we take it to the dump because it's waste. How much of our lives does Jesus bless us with in abundance? And with our abundance, we don't do anything valuable with it for the kingdom of God, but we use it to buy things that are waste. That somebody someday is going to look at this and throw it away. And Jesus is trying to get them to understand, I want to not only bless you, I want to give you an abundance, but I don't want it to go to waste. I want it to glorify me. And that's what the leftovers in this story were meant to do. Twelve baskets. To me, it would have been a reminder of the twelve tribes of Israel having an abundance every single day. It should have been a reminder that God is a provider and that he is willing to give us more than enough. The second aspect of the abundance and not wanting to waste it is that idea that it would have reminded them we're on our way to the Passover. God does feed miraculously. And who does this point to? Just as Moses was a part of the first miracle, we're now witnessing before our very own eyes somebody who was able to do the exact same miracle that we're all celebrating tremendously 
right now. Verse 14, that's exactly what it does. Those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Again, understand, they're here to, they're going to celebrate Moses and what happened with the Israelites and their deliverance from Egypt. But they also were going to remember that God was the provider of their forefathers, manna, bread from heaven, that they were given more than enough, an abundance. And even God told the Israelites back then, what? Don't take more than you need. I'll give you more than enough, but I don't want it to go to waste. That's what God told the Israelites thousands of years before, and that's what Jesus is telling his people right now. Just as Jesus had told the Pharisees at the end of chapter 5, if you would have believed in Moses, you'd believe in me because Moses wrote about me. But they didn't recognize that. The people are now recognizing. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 17 through 18, Moses writes these words. You probably didn't know that Moses was speaking of Jesus, that a book that everybody knows was written thousands of years before any of the Gospels would relate to this day. And the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So now because of the miracle, the people are actually starting to see who is Jesus. Right then and there, you know if the people are starting to recognize who he is, Jesus could have. There was a lot of could haves here, right? That's part of the lesson. He could have grabbed the moment and ran with it. He could have said, let's gain on this momentum. Yes, I am the I am. He could have let them know, I am God. Let's do this thing. But just like Jesus knew when it was time to stay and feed the people, he also knew when it was time to go away. It's always about being on God's timeline and not our own. Our final verse, therefore, when Jesus perceived, he had this feeling, this idea, this perception, God-given, that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. So listen, even though the people had a better understanding of who is Jesus, Listen, they were still missing the point. They were still missing the point. The whole test and answer session. If I was to just preach about the little boy's childlike faith today, that would have been a good lesson. If I was to have just taught you about how Andrew and Philip each answered, and those shouldn't be the answers. That would have been a good lesson. How Jesus can take a little and do a lot with it, that would have been a good lesson. How his disciples had the ability and opportunity to share in the miracle, to grow their faith, that would have been a good lesson. But none of those in the big picture of what John is trying to accomplish to people that would read this gospel thousands of years later are actually the reason for the test. All of those points are true. We should be generous. We should trust Jesus with what little we have to offer. God will provide. He will multiply. And we will always have more than enough in Jesus' name. But none of those are the point. Don't miss the point of the test. The Christian life 
is not about coming to Jesus to let him give you some new tools to live better. The Christian life is not about God sprinkling some wisdom on our little brains to help us through really tough days. Christianity is about reality with Jesus. Right here, right now. It's about factoring Jesus into every situation that we face. It's about coming to God through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit to live a life that is fully open to him in such a way that the impossibilities of life are no longer threats to us, but opportunities for us, for us to know him more and more each and every day. That's the point. There's a lot of tests in life, but the only answer is Jesus.